Another week of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Lynn Elias, Movie Shark Deblore. Hey, you, whatever whatever floats your boat, I'll answer to. My <laughs> cinematic sidekick today, once again, yeah. is my good friend Greg Srizavazdi. Hello. Hello. This is show number 27, right? 20, 28. 28, wow. 28, wow. I think, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it's we're really in the, in the thick of things when I haven't talked to you, I think, since Monday. I know. So it's no, we're now in this thing where we... Uh, we we don't keep contact until every Monday. That means we're a well well oiled machine, I think. And we're also yeah. we're we're all over the place. Yes, that's why. That's really you know why. very no, not because we don't hate we we like each other. We really, very much we're, so. We're good friends. It's just about you're busy. You're busy all the time. I'm busy. You're busy. You know. Yesterday, yeah. I, I do have to admit, I did take some time to participate in uh, in my beloved TCM party live tweeting. Okay. Yeah. Which uh, which is the hashtag is what's the has- hashtag? It's hashtag that? TCM party. TCM party. Okay. TCM party. And yesterday it was it was a lot of fun. Barbara Stanwyck and Ball of Fire, mm. and then divorce American style with Debbie Reynolds, Dick Van Dyke, and a cast of some of the most beloved TV faces of the '60s and '70s you could ever hope to see. That was actually Norman Lear and Bud Yorkin oh, wow. who put yeah. that together. And uh, Bob Mackey did the costume designing. Okay, okay. So, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, uh, that's a fun, that's a fun, fun, you know, film. It's not on that often. Yeah. But it really, it's filled with sarcasm, pokes fun at things. It's, it's a real classic in terms of pop culture history, the zeitgeist, uh, and I, it's you know, and everybody seemed to really enjoy it. Who was uh, doing live tweeting yesterday? What is it like doing the live tweeting for a TCM party? I think I did that once, and it seems that there's a whole group of people who do that. On there, there are a whole lot of people. Some of the yeah. the real regulars are uh, Kelly Pratt. Kelly, of course, has been on the show before with us after right. after TCM and Aurora yeah. uh, uh, Bugallo yeah. and uh, Will McKinley. Is one of the big ones. I adore Will. Yeah. Uh, my friend Alan Haight from Philadelphia, now in Florida. And then when uh, they tweet, do they tweet out Hollywood information or information about that movie, or just their reactions? A little bit of both. It's a combination of all yeah. kinds of things. I typically will will dive in there with things on the cinematography, on the production, on cast members or crew members that mm-hmm. I knew that I worked with right. in the eighties. Okay. Um, you know, then some of it is just dialogue, you know, because some of it is so funny. Or every time a certain character actor will appear on screen, it's like drink, and uh, <laughs> you know, and it, it's fun when Ileana Douglas gets involved as well. And Ben okay. and Ben Mankiewicz, Ben will tweet along sometimes too. Yeah. So it's very collegial, it's very communal. There is no hate there, it's really? just okay. cinematic love. You cannot. Your personal opinion of a movie can be you don't like it, right? But nobody rains on anybody else's parade, and there's a, and everybody always seems uh. to find something that they love, even if yeah. we're all ooing and eyeing over costumes and gowns by Helen Rose or Edith right. Head, you know. For me, if I was a regular tweeter, tweetist during that TCM party hashtag thing, I would love to see new people, 
for you, I'm sure it's great when new people start tweeting and they get really involved yeah. with a certain movie and they're not the usual crew. Uh, the usual crew is great, but I'm sure having all these great different editions you've never seen before is great too. And that's one one reason why I always try and infuse a lot of background, technical background on a film or the history of it, right. especially for MGM films because I have such a wealth of research material and stuff at home. Now let's be let's be honest. You say MGM films because it's basically your back your backyard and you know home court advantage when it comes to researching. But no, MGM <laughs> MGM actually goes back to my master's thesis was on the MGM Hollywood musical. Wow. Did you get an A? Did you? What did do you, you think? Okay, okay. But now and then with it being in your backyard, that must be one of the great things about your area and where you live because it really is. To know, to, uh, to know I'm sitting on top of what used to be Lot 5 and I used to live on top of Lot 2, yeah. That's so, it's such a great area. It uh, is. Yeah. And, you know, I'm just really, I'm really distressed, though, seeing what all the new construction that's going on and all the old stuff that is once again being torn out. So yes. there are things that you're actually not happy with as far as things that are being eradicated or changed right. within the... With, not... Within the Sony uh, complex. Oh, wow. That I did not know. Yeah. Okay. No, they're doing another big build out there. Um, yeah, about the only thing they haven't touched is the back end off of Madison, uh, the Irving Thalberg building. At, oh, yeah. That's... But so many of the main sets and the iconic portions of the studio of, you know... The lion that roared are now gone. Oh. And it, it's very, very sad. It's very sad to see it because I am, as you know, I am all for preserving television and film history and not just, you know, what's on the celluloid right. or what's on the videotape, but also the things behind it, the equipment, the sets, the costumes, all of that needs to be preserved. I'll be very glad when the Academy uh, Museum opens when that gets done because that will be a wonderful wonderful home to a lot of memorabilia so we're talking about hollywood history and i was thinking about what i mentioned today and you know i i wanted to throw this out there you were talking about mysteries of the unexplained the reader's digest yes book i've had this thing for <laughs> years it's an amazing book it's kind of like if you're a big fan of Rod Serling and su the mm -hmm. Supernatural, The Twilight Zone. It's a, it's a great book to have. But one of the things I really love about it is there's a story with Anthony Hopkins. And, and he was doing this film called The Girl from Petrovka. Mm -hmm. And to do research for that, for that film, he wanted to actually buy the book by the author, George Pfeiffer. Right. And so he's looking around, trying to cross road for it, looking at all the bookshops, and he couldn't, he couldn't find it. But he, he's in the subway, and he actually, for some reason, that actual book is there at the subway station. Wow. He picks it up, and maybe it's a bit of synchronicity. A couple years later, he's on another set, and the writer from The Girl from Petrovka is there. They're having, I believe, lunch or dinner or what, whatnot. And he mentioned to Hopkins how he couldn't find a book. He actually lost his own copy of the book several years back because he gave it to a friend. And Hopkins, at that moment, had that book, and he says, George... Is this the exact book that you were looking for? The one that has all the little scribbles in the margins. And wow. that was the exact book he lost. So anyways, a little bit of Hollywood history. And, you know, just uh, like 15 years ago, I remember I, I interviewed Anthony Hopkins at a roundtable. I forgot for which, 
for what movie, but I mentioned that story, and he he relayed that to me as well. Just little Hollywood history. That I and wanted, and that's yeah. the greatest stuff in the world. Yeah, yeah. And so. you you know I always love that you know when I do interviews with like with Sam Elliott, you know somebody yeah. that yeah. you know we've known each other thirty four years. So many stories to share, right? And yeah. yeah, and we dance around each other, and we never get around. So many of these guys, we never get around to sitting down and actually doing interviews. You know, it was like a, really strange for Oren Moverman and I, you know, because we become friends over the years. Right, and right. yeah, we sat down to do a one-on-one <laughs> about love and mercy, and we're talking about Kaufman vodka and getting it back into the country. So that's an important subject. We <laughs> have, you know, it always, but it makes for. You always get tidbits, though, because right. you are conversational, you are engaged, you have that personal connection, and that right. is so important. That's something my dad actually talked about in symposiums when he spoke Okay, years yeah. ago, was all about the connections, and you never know where that connection is going to lead you or when it's going to come around again. Perfect example oh, is wow. one of the shows we're talking about today, okay. Living the Dream, a new web series. Right. I had no clue that my friend Byron Bean haven't seen him in years. Wow. He went to produce he used to be a bartender he at Ford's filling station. Okay. Okay, yes. And by the way, happy birthday Harrison Ford. It is his birthday today. Oh, okay. But by and that's yeah. where we had met and then right. he left and he went to producing school and yeah. he's been working very successfully as a manager and a producer oh, and man. This new web series, Live in the Dream, wouldn't you know it? Guess who one of the producers is? Byron. Wow. So Byron is actually going to be joining us next week. Oh, that's amazing. To talk about producing a web series in the digital platforming and things that are available today. And I'm sure it's great for you because I'm sure he talked about producing and filmmaking even at an early stage and to see him years always, later. Always, always. Oh, really? Okay. Always. See? And that, that's yeah. been a common thread with so many of the people that I know. Uh, Kendra uh, Montagna will be joining us next week as well. Kendra and I, Kendra actually, she had a small part in Co-op of the Damned, okay. a web series that I exec produced that Ned Airbar right. wrote and directed. Right. Uh, Kendra had a part in that. She's had little parts on Bones and, and things like that. She is going to be fresh off of Comic-Con where she was working behind the scenes for NBC wow. on their Heroes Beyond event. Oh, okay. So Kendra will actually be here in studio next week. Heroes Reborn. Heroes Reborn? Yeah. Heroes Beyond? What and beyond. They're, they're going beyond okay. because they're reborn. I'm not, I wasn't correcting you. I'm just saying that I'm a geek. And I'm a, I'm a heroes geek. I love heroes. Well, they, they just released a trailer yesterday at the last day of Comic Con. I'm excited for that interview next week. So. Yeah. Well, Kendra will be here, so maybe she'll even tell you stuff off the record. Okay. Nice. But but today we've got joining us from Living the Dream. We've got the creative geniuses sisters Kim and my Spurlock. Okay. Who are actually they called in early? They're on hold, so we're oh, going okay. to pick them up in a second here. Uh, also joining us will be Laura Campbell who is, quote-unquote, the star of mm-hmm. Living the Dream. Uh, at 11.30, we've got an incredible direct writer-director, Morgan Schmidt-Fang. He'll be here to talk about his documentary on her own about the family farming crisis right. and what the Great Recession of 2008 did to that. That is also tonight's uh, Arclight Slam Dance Cinema Club feature, and I'll be moderating the Q&A for that. 
And then hopefully we'll have time. We'll get to some exclusive stuff on the gallows. Hmm. Ant-Man. Ant-Man, okay. Which I know Brian in our booth is looking forward to hearing <laughs> about Ant-Man. He's, he's clenching his fist in excitement back there. But why don't we just get to okay. it right now? Okay. And is this the wonderful Kim and my Spurlock? Yes, it is. We're in the yeah. same room, so we'll try not to overlap each other. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hi, guys. Welcome to Beyond, Behind the Lens. I am so glad you could join us today. We are, too. Thank you, Debbie. Yeah, we're so excited to be here. You're oh. our first interview ever. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, you've come to the right place for your first interview ever. And one of the things that's so exciting for me, and I was just explaining to my sidekick here, Greg Srizavazdi, that... Um, it turns out one of your producers, Byron Bean, and I, Byron and I have known each other for over a decade. And we hadn't really talked a lot uh, in the, the past couple of years. And lo and behold, I get your project to take a look at from your very diligent publicist. And all of a sudden I see, oh, my God, Byron's one of the producers. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's such hey. a coincidence. So Byron is actually going to be joining us next week. Oh, lovely. Oh, he mentioned that. I know. I'm so excited for him. He's so excited, too. We had a little party last week, and he was all he was all aglow. So, yeah, Byron, well, that's because Byron already saw the, my thoughts on the web series Live in the Dream. Oh. He got to see them before anybody. When I found out he was producer on it, you know, I, I <laughs> snuck him my thoughts on the side. Oh. <laughs> but they were happy thoughts. I know. They were very they happy. they were dark, evil thoughts. <laughs> no. They were very happy thoughts. And it looks like we have Laura on the other line now. Sweet. And my trusty Brian has brought her into the call. Laura, are you there too? Hello. Hi, Laura. How, welcome Hi. to welcome to Behind the Lens. We have your, Hi, thank you. We have your, your genius creators, writers, producers, Kim and, and directors, Kim and Mai on the line. Hey guys. So this is this is a real love fest here because let me tell you, I am loving living the dream. I watched all eight episodes and ladies, I have to tell you, it was I laughed myself silly. Um I kept thinking, What were you doing? Did you stick a GoPro or something in my living room when you when you created the Golden Girls sequence? I this and I have to say that Laura, you make the show. Your performance oh, as Kit, you make the show. Where did okay. where did this whole idea come from? Because you guys all touch on all the tropes and cliches of the industry. You've got great sarcasm, great tongue in cheek, wonderful reference, you know, zeitgeist pop culture references to film and television that everybody's going to know and they're going to laugh themselves silly when they hear it or see a reference to it. So where did this come from? And, and for Kim and mine, then for Laura, how did you get involved in this? Um, yeah, so mine, I, uh, you know, we had been uh, making shorts together uh, when I was at NYU. And then uh, after I graduated, I had a really good short that went around that did really well. And then career kind of stalled after that. And, uh, you know, Mai and I got together and sort of, Decided that would be really funny to write about. <laughs> we did. I, I, was, I was actually listening to a podcast about the Guild and got obsessed with watching that show. And the producer and me loved it because I thought, well, let's make something. This is my talking, by the way. That's super economical to make. That's dialogue focused. 
and and that is kind of about more personal about where we are in our lives right now. And so I pitched her the idea. I was like, how about we make a web series about, initially it was three women who just finished film school and are struggling to make their first teachers in New York. Mm-hmm. And then I did a very rough first draft within a week or two, and I made it all about Kim because I'm her younger sister. I think she's awesome, and I love to make fun of her. So. <laughs> <laughs> Where it came in, but I, I made fun of myself, too. So, so it is sort of a mashup of both of our characters. Yeah. So are you, then, la- are you ladies telling me that you are now the female version of the Duplass brothers? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, they hold up to that standard consistently. I, I have to. That we hope to be. That would be great. <laughs> I would love it, yes. I mean, yes, we are that. <laughs> no false Southern modesty. We are awesome. We are the Sherlock sisters. Yes, you are. <laughs> so, so Laura, how did you come to get involved in this? And what is it about? Because I watch you in the performing as Kit, and it's like, there is so much authenticity there. This woman has lived a lot of this before. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, sorry, there's construction in my apartment, so it might be a little loud. Um, so, yeah, I got an audition from my agent, and I went in, and uh, to it. I mean, it's really high. I got involved. Um, but when I read it, I, I kind of started giggling to myself because it is very seemingly personal to me as well, uh, the story itself. Um, and I related to a lot of what Kit goes through and the idea of, you know, getting it into, into an industry out of school where you're so artistic and you can dive into everything you love and getting on facing the realities of what the industry really <laughs> is about. Um, so I really related to it. And I had a hard time telling people what it was about because I just feel like, well, it's kind of my life. So I don't know what else to say about that. You know. We're so lucky um, we found her. We had been casting. We had already been through a whole round of casting for our lead character. And we just knew that the whole thing was going to hinge upon, you know, whoever we found to play kid. Mm-hmm. And Laura didn't even come in until the second round uh, and I think not even at the beginning. So we were just kind of at our wit's end, and then she walked in and was just so perfect. <laughs> the ability to correctly manipulate the voodoo Barbie. Uh, yeah. and, and you know, and it's uh, funny. I, I was just going to ask. All efficiency. Only, only Laura could do it. Only she. Only she's the only one that pulled that off. And you know, and that's something I wanted to ask you: the hippie voodoo episode, which. Is where? Please tell me somebody had a, a Barbie doll. They did this too. Um. Yes. Until I'm, I just moved to New York. But until that, I lived in Topanga Canyon, which is the home of all things New Agey. And uh, I just matched that together with my traumatized childhood memories of Kim, my my Barbie doll. So that's where that came from. Well, so, Laura, how was it for you to actually then dress like your hippie voodoo Barbie doll? <laughs> <laughs> that That just stuck out for me so incredibly and i just thought that was a charming charming touch that you guys put in yeah that was really cool the everybody was really um integral and you know like creating that world but um i kind of dressed like that anyway (laughs) it wasn't really i think much of a stretch for us um but it was kind of cool to see her with her you know glasses and i'd come in with these glasses on you know for the audition and um to see that sort of be brought to life was very very kind of cool no, and I'm disturbing. <laughs> <laughs> well, the fact that somebody would use Barbie dolls as voodoo dolls, that's disturbing in and of itself, but we won't, we won't go there. 
it kind of goes in with with Greg's mysteries of the unexplained book he brought in today. <laughs> yeah, so now well, I, I have a uh, mystery kind of question to ask, to ask you guys. Uh, just I w- I'm reading your blog over here, and it talks about how growing up, going to movies and listening to the sounds of your West Virginia neighborhood was a big influence in your storytelling and your filmmaking. Can you talk about your early movie love and how that shaped who you guys are today? Well, it was, that was just a huge part of our upbringing. In the 70s, I don't think people really had babysitters, or at least our parents didn't. So we saw every movie playing from a very young age. Uncensored. Including Sharky's <laughs> Machine when I was 10, oh, wow. uh, yeah. Caligula when I was 12. Oh, yeah, our mother took us to, to, t- to see Caligula, and she we didn't leave for about an hour until the fisting scene. <laughs> and then she was like, that's enough. We have she to leave. She thought anything with John Gilded would be appropriate uh, for young viewers. It was, it's just, you know, a big part of our family bonding yeah. rituals, as it is for a lot of Americans. Our grandparents owned a movie theater in Detroit in the 20s. Oh. And then moved that to West Virginia. They had a warehouse behind their general store with these huge old movie projectors. Movie projectors. They're, you know, hand wrought. They're gorgeous. They're in my father's garage in West Virginia right now. And so it, it was just a big part of our upbringing and, and sort of our family ritual, going to movies, discussing movies, quoting movies. And, mm-hmm. and you know, we didn't mm-hmm. always get some of the quote-unquote art house cinema in, in West Virginia. Mm-hmm. So occasionally when one did come in, it kind of blew our minds. And I think the Cohen Brothers was one of the first ones that we saw quite young and were just like, wow, people do that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you mean, what what was, was more shocking, Caligula or the Cohen Brothers? <laughs> <laughs> Now, something I've knowing your history now and your love of movies, how did you how did you find Lyle Vincent, your DP, and create the beautiful, lightly toned visual palette that you have, consistent through all eight episodes, but for episode six where things get a little bit darker. They do get a little darker, and that kind of mirrors, I guess, Kit's sort of hitting rock bottom. Um, yeah, Lyle's wonderful. We went to school together. We had worked together in the past, and he had just shot a. Uh, a beautiful, beautiful feature called, it was a Iranian vampire western that had just got all this press for its cinematography. And, um, you know, he just has exquisite control and a great eye. And then we had a really wonderful production designer, Amy Imanishi, who uh, we talked to at length between her, Lyle, and me about the palette, how to keep things together on a budget. And, um, and then we had a camera choice, which for camera geeks out there, we shot with a seven, the Sony A7S, which is a mirrorless DSLR camera that shoots up to like 100,000. Or I think we were shooting at 60,000 ASA occasionally, and that allowed us to shoot in dark locations like the bar with barely any additional light and things like that. So we were able to move very quickly. I have to say the bar scenes looked absolutely beautiful. And going and with the bar theme, Laura, you sit there with with hippie voodoo Barbie, and just the two of you just. <laughs> drink so beautifully together with her <laughs> resting in that martini glass. Was this a big stretch for you? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, no. <laughs> I give too much away about myself to say no. No, I mean, I think that when someone, you know, when you hit bottom and you don't know what else to do, like, I, I get that. Um, being alone in a bar and drinking that much is probably a stretch. But you but, had um, but you had Barbie with you. Hippie Barbie. I had Barbie with me. 
Yeah. You know, she's great. She, and, you know, the olives absorb a lot of that alcohol. So she was getting the brunt <laughs> of it. And the sodium. And I hate olives. <laughs> See? You know, well, then you should have been drinking Gibson's instead with, with the onion. <laughs> yes. Agreed. <laughs> so, agreed. Yeah, that would definitely You know, so for future episodes, ladies, you know, bear that in mind. You know, Gibson. she, she yeah. ha- yes, do Gibson's and not martinis. Got it. <laughs> write that down right now. What do you find, how exciting is it for you to have the internet there opening up web series as another platform for product to put your work for your voice to be seen and heard? Well, I I can tell you one thing. It feels really exhilarating and quite amazing to have that kind of control. Like, you don't have to, you're not waiting for permission. Know, and that's what I felt like I had been doing for about three or four years after I graduated with a script or two that had gotten some heat and got, you know, gotten into the development phase and this and that. And I just at some point was like, wow, I'm just waiting for people to say yes so I can do something with the Internet. You know, with much smaller budget, you can sort of take control, take the reins. And, you know, and it's also the Wild West. It's exciting and it's creative mm-hmm. in the way that you can actually make, you know, distribution for yourself. So sort of figuring out as we go and it's, quite fun. I guess in layman's terms, when people, when you're actually fixed on a certain budget, what, in your opinion, are the most important elements to use that money for? Is it the locale? Is it the aforementioned camera and your DP? Or what are the most important elements for you guys? Well, I think overall, there's a blanket where I just wanted to, we couldn't pay people very much, but I wanted to make sure everyone was paid something, you know? Um, So I would say that Definitely the daily rate for everyone to get something was a huge part of the budget. And then, as always, craft service is expensive. You want everyone to be fed and fed well twice a day and so that people can keep working and, you know. And just planning, 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 planning is such a, a key help to the budget. Writing, rewriting, rewriting so that every word is, in my opinion, pretty good or awesome. And, and if you have a good story, the rest will follow. And then planning so you don't have any surprises. Just try to think of everything ahead of time because, you know, you want to make sure you have your insurance. Like Kim said, you have nice food and every everything runs. You know, plan for the uh, worst, prepare for the – what is that saying? Yeah, expect the pre- – wait, expect the best, prepare for the worst, or yes. the other way around? expect the best, prepare for the worst. Yeah. yeah. And, and just try to keep it minimal. You know, so many scenes we had, so many different set ideas, so many different situations. But you, yep. you have to have discipline – when you write it from the beginning to make sure that you can sort of meet your budget. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think trying to squeeze as much production value out of your budget as possible, which means finding a committed and talented production designer, a great shooter, and, um, you know, being smart with your locations. Like, we only spent money on really on one location, and it was for episode one just to sort of set up, you know, a look and make it feel like it had some, you know, we spent, you know, some money on production. And then a lot of it we actually shot in our apartment or my friend's apartment local businesses in Brooklyn that were very, very good to us as far as um, penalties and stuff like that. I mean, I have to tell you, the production values belie a totally no-budget production. You really do have some beautiful production values here, especially, you know, when you get into locations, you get into the bars, you have the, the brick wall, which that sets an entire tone all of its own. The apartments, okay, Golden Girls, okay, <laughs> you know, I, I I do hope you at least sprung for the good vodka or the good gin. Um, 
<laughs> so, <laughs> but you, you really, you can see the care and attention that you put into this project. Now, Laura, for you as an actress, how exciting is it to have, you know, the digital platforms now, the web series, as another way of showcasing your talent? Yeah, it's super great. It's the first time I've done anything like this. Um, but I learned so much from doing this. Yeah. Oh, sorry. That you... um, I learned so much from doing this because... Um, I've never done anything that sort of has a stretch over multiple episodes like that. You know, mm -hmm. I've done sort of guest stints here and there. And they're mostly on productions where you sort of go in, you stand on your mark, and then you leave, and you don't get to see all the other stuff or hear all the other uh, things being said around the camera or the angles or uh, and all of the things behind the scenes. And this was great because you sort of got to be there all the time. I got to be there all the time because I was in a lot of the scenes, so it was super <laughs> informative. Um, and educational for me to see. And then to feel what it's like to have a character that goes throughout multiple episodes and then see what that looks like fairly quickly afterwards is, mm -hmm. is really interesting, really cool and exciting. Um, I really love it. Now, when you guys shoot uh, the web series, because each of these episodes is roughly five to eight minutes long, do you shoot multiples at one time? Do you shoot one, do the editing on that, then come back and shoot another one? Or is it a kind of uh, ebb and flow? Um, for this particular project, I've spoken to many people with web series on how they do it. Um, and they do it all kinds of ways, like you just mentioned. We chose to do it all at once. So we shot all eight episodes in six days, basically. Um, and I, my logic was just, you know, I thought if I, there are certain people I really wanted to work with on the technical side. And I figured if I could get them at one stretch, it would be much more, I would be much more likely to get them at one stretch than piecemeal because they get pretty busy. Sure. Um, and also, I, you know, we had talked about releasing them all at once, too, because it's a serial. It's not episodic, per se. So, you know, we just wanted people to be able to click through all of them at once so they can follow the storyline kind of thing. Well, I couldn't get enough of it. When I got through episode eight, it's like, okay, where's nine? Where's nine? Sweet <laughs> <laughs> in our brains. I mean, I am, I'm ready. I'm ready for more. I got to tell you. And I think anybody that watches the watches live in the dream is going to want more too, because it is, it's fun. It's, it's light. There are darker tones. You real, but you really shed a light on behind, behind the lens in this crazy industry that we're all in. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I, I just, I just, I'm so excited for you guys, for the project. I can't wait for more. Unfortunately, our next guest is on the line, so okay, we okay. we have to wrap. This well, thank you so much. This was so much fun. Thank you. We really appreciate it. Oh, yeah. guys, thank, thank you so much. Thank yeah. you, and we'll be we'll be talking about living the dream next week again with Byron and Aaron too. Sweet. Yeah. All right. Okay. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Thank, thank you. you so much. Bye bye. And we're going to take a short break because Jordan has to do a battery change. And when we come back, we are going to be talking with Morgan Schmidt-Fang about the documentary On Her Own. Behind the Lens is sponsored in part by the Culver City Observer. Located in the heart of Screenland, Culver City Observer is available in print, and online at www.culvercityobserver.com.
www.thepeopleshow.com. And we are back behind the lens. You just heard us talking with my Spurlock, Kim Spurlock, and Laura Campbell about the new web series, Live in the Dream. You can find it on Vimeo. What yes, is it? On Vimeo. Li- and the site is living, livinthedream.tv. Living the Dream. Living. Yes, there's no G. It's Living the right. Dream. And trust me, you are going to want more once you see this because it is engaging. It is fun. And something else you're going to want more of is our next guest. This is Morgan Schmidt-Fang. Hi, how are you doing? I'm fine, Morgan. How are you doing? Good, good. Excited to be uh, down in L.A. to uh, premiere at the Arclight tonight. Uh, Well, I'm very excited because you're going to have to put up with me again tonight, too. (laughs) No problem. That's going to be awesome. (laughs) We're going to be, I'm going to be moderating the Q&A post-screening tonight. I have to tell you, Morgan, this is a, an extremely powerful documentary. It's a very personal documentary. And even though it's about, on the surface, family, you know, multi-generational families, you know, farm families in the United States and what, how they took a really big hit, perhaps more so than many, as a result of the Great Depression of 2008, um, there is something in there about the family, about the children, um, the patriarch, the matriarch. There is something that all of us can relate to. And I think you did a beautiful job of bringing that to light and making it really, giving it universal emotional appeal. Thank you so much. Um, It it definitely was an emotional uh, journey to spend five years with this family, um, filming them, and... I feel incredibly uh, honored and privileged to be able to, you know, be with them during some of the toughest periods of, of their family's history and to be able to bring that to people and um, have people get a sense of what it's really like for farming families to bring food to us um, on our table every day and, you know, how hard they work to do that. Well, and this this is also a story that you can relate to yourself being a third generation Iowa corn family. True, um, I I grew up in a city, um, but my mom grew up in a small town in Badger, Iowa, um, a town of only three hundred people, and um, my great grandmother's grandparents immigrated from Norway to that town and started growing corn and raised uh, pigs. And, um, you know, there was one, one church in a town, and it was, uh, the church sermon was actually in Norwegian, and the town newspaper was in Norwegian as well. Um, so I heard those stories as a kid growing up uh, in Berkeley, not really having the opportunity to see what that life is really like. Um, and so I started uh, filming Nancy with kind of a romantic idea of what farming was really like, um, you know, until sort of the more gritty reality set in, um, especially after the passing of her father and then later her mother. Mm -hmm. What led you to uh, Nancy uh, Prebolish? Is that how we say her last name? Yes, yes. What led you to the Prebolish family and to Nancy? 
Um, well, one of my day job is is a cinematographer, and I was uh, hired to shoot um, these small vignettes for a cooking show in Northern California. And one of those um, one of those uh, family farms was Nancy's uh, Gleason Ranch, mm-hmm. um, and so I spent maybe three or four hours filming her and her family. And then I was off to the next um, farm to film, and I asked her, "Hey, can I stay in touch with you? And and you know maybe I could come out on my own dime and time and film uh, you and your family. You know, no obligation. I'm not asking you know you to hire me or anything. I just want to come out and film because I think what you guys are doing is great." And she's like, "Sure." come on out, you know, and she just figured, hey, maybe she'll have something for her website, um, you know, to sell to sell more uh, product to the farmer's market. Mm-hmm. Now, when, when you went out there to shoot, did you have any idea, because you have a definite story that unfolds uh, within the documentary, you've got great metaphor and great analogy, the idea of, you know, mortality, financially from the life and death aspect of animals on a farm, the farm itself. There is a lot of wonderful storytelling going on here. Did you have any idea that this would be unfolding the way it did? And how did you develop the, the through line that you have? Um, you know, when I started filming, for me, it was like, oh, you know, I get a break from my regular job of, you know, shooting for other folks, you know, and following tight schedules and scripts and and storyboards. And this was an opportunity for me just to kind of do what I really love, which is telling stories visually um, with with my camera. And I was looking at it as like, oh, this is a great break to shoot stuff that's really fun and and interesting. And then, you know, it, it really started there. And then it evolved as the unfolded in their real life um you know a year into filming is when her father passed away unexpectedly and that's when the sort of that's when it all became very very kind of real for me and less of this kind of more romantic idea of farming that i had initially and so you know one of the uh, one of the benefits of doing a film over a five-year period is you have a lot of time in between filming to kind of let the story sink in and and work in your subconscious, work in, you know, when you're taking a shower, you get ideas, or you're, you know, half asleep and you get an idea and you get up and you write it down. And so that kind of filmmaking really lends itself to, to uh, telling a story that kind of just grows in this, in this sort of organic way. Um, and rather than kind of rushing through a 10-day shoot or something and then and then you, like, start editing immediately. And, and this process was, was very different from that kind of rushed process that a lot of filmmakers find themselves in. I guess the obvious question for me would be, what did Nancy and her, her family feel or, or think about the documentary? Because it's a really personal look over that five-year span and really well done by, by you. But just wondering their reaction and you know so well i think i think nancy being sort of the the spokesperson of the family and right. she's always 
kind of been the more extroverted of the of you know the siblings because she has an older sister, Cindy, and her mom and her dad, you know, are are sort of more laid back and sort of keep to themselves and a little bit quieter. And so Nancy was immediately like seeing, oh, this is a good thing, and was on board. Um, and you know, it took a little while for the rest of the family to warm up to me. And I think the critical moment for the family was when their father passed away and we filmed the funeral and then cut together a DVD of the whole thing. And, and my brother cut the DVD and gave it to them as a gift. I think that was kind of where they shifted in their opinion about the filming process and the, the level of trust just kind of went to a higher level. And um, they viewed me more as an extended member of the family and less uh, as somebody who was there to kind of just take something from them. Was there ever a, a moment that you felt, because some of the moments that you capture are so personal, they are in, in the heat of anger, in the heat of passion, in the throes of utter frustration and despair, was there ever a moment you felt you should not be filming something? Um, definitely. I mean, there was definitely times where, you know, I didn't even, I, I wouldn't shoot and I wouldn't take the camera out. There was times when things were just very tense and, you know, I didn't feel it was always appropriate for me to film. Um, and, you know, and I just went with my gut, you know, I just sort of, it wasn't something I really thought about in advance. It was just I would react in the moment and I would try, you know, to put myself in their shoes and try to get a sense of, of what they want. And also, I also knew, too, as a filmmaker telling a story in my mind, you know, there were certain things like where it just got really heated or something, and I just knew I wouldn't use that. I knew mm -hmm. that I wouldn't need to show that in order to tell the story of this family and there was times too where I would come out and I never even took the camera out of the bag and I would just have lunch and hang and just get caught up with what was going on in their life and just have a conversation and go home and so there was times where you know you just invest in in spending time with people and not necessarily filming so you know it, it, there were times like that for sure how many hours of footage did you have to ultimately cull through in the editing process? Um, surprisingly, you know, I only had about maybe 60 hours. Um, you know, I think the more typical ratio is about 100. Um, you know, I met a filmmaker recently who did a film in, uh, in the Ukraine on sheep herders, and he shot 700 hours. So... You know, it really varies a lot for filmmakers, but for me, um, you know, I I always shot when I felt it was, you know, when something was unfolding or happening, but I, you know, I, I didn't try, I didn't, like, just overshoot. I don't think I overshot it, but, um, you know, it really ended up being the perfect amount of footage, I think, in the end. Um, I did have a seven-and-a-half-hour assembly edit, Mm -hmm. that, that we cut down, and then we did a series of cut downs from, from that seven-and-a-half-hour initial um, assembly. And 
relied a lot on close family, friends, and peers uh, for their incredible feedback. Um, you know, I would show early uh, an early cut to the film, and and I took their comments and their feedback very seriously, and and made you know made changes based on that because a lot of times you get so close to the material, and I got to give a lot of credit to Nicholas Carter, the editor, for you know, really tuning in to the way that I shot this film. He came in and never met Nancy and never met the family until the editing was finished. And so he he brought a degree of objectivity to the footage that I think editors are very valuable at doing. Um, and so, uh, you know, getting that feedback from, from folks was, was great. Um, so, yeah. What? It must be great for you too to see the kind of reaction your film has received at, uh, at the film festivals and and um, Nancy getting that standing ovation back in March and just showing your film out there. That must. What does that mean to you as a filmmaker? Um, to me, you know, the nearly six years of incredibly hard work and a lot of resources that my family, you know, my wife is the co-producer on this film and, you know, all of that sort of sacrifice to make this film. When I go to a screening like we had in Nancy's hometown of Sebastopol and have that kind of reaction and the reactions that we've been getting all over the, the country and even in Canada when you get people that come up to you and say, this film has really affected me in a profound way, has really touched me, or, you know, they have a personal story about farming um, for themselves. And when you have that reaction from people um, and when you see how touched they are by the film, it makes it all worth it, um, all the sacrifice, all the time and the money and the resources. And, and it really inspires you to want to keep um, sharing the film with as many people as, as you can. So how exciting is it for you for knowing the film is going to screen tonight on the very large screen in Arclight in Hollywood? Um, I, I couldn't be more thrilled with what Slamdance is doing with the Cinema Club um, and the Arclight. Uh, I think it's such a great... Um, opportunity for filmmakers um, on a you know that are smaller um, scale filmmakers who you know don't have access to the kind of venue that the ArcLight uh, can provide, and so I feel it's a great opportunity to share it with a lot of people in the LA area that might not necessarily see it on a big screen and at the level of quality that that they uh, deliver, mm-hmm. and so. My wife, uh, Susanna Aguayo, a lot of her family lives down here, so it's really cool to be able to have a lot of friends and family that can come to the screening. Well, I am so looking forward to tonight's screening, Morgan, and I'm really looking forward to chatting with you and the audience tonight with our post-screening Q&A, because a film like this is something that a lot of uh, Angelinos aren't normally going to be exposed to. Just yeah. for, for the, just because of the nature of the documentary itself, they think they're very far removed, you know, from a farm quote unquote film. But this is all about human spirit and resilience and survival, and that's something we can all relate to. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I really appreciate you guys, um, you know, getting the word out and taking the time to do this interview. And um, I want to, again, thank the Arclight and Slamdance and um, to let people know, too, that uh, Nancy Prevlich and Chris Brown and Susanna Aguayo are all going to be there um, tonight along with uh, tons of other family and friends. So we look forward to having a lively Q&A with you. And, um, you know, just like us on Facebook and check out our website on heronfilm.com. And, of course, people can. We still have some tickets to give away for tonight's screening, too. So anybody listening, uh, you can email editor at deepestdream.com. Greg's handling the giveaway tonight, and maybe we can give away some tickets to some people and uh, get some more people to come fill those seats tonight. Awesome. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much, Morgan. I will see you in a few hours. Awesome. My pleasure. Thank you again. Thank you. Thanks, Morgan. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. And that was Morgan Schmidt-Fang talking about On Her Own. Yeah, and check out deepestdream.com for the ticket giveaway for tonight's screening. Yeah, there is still time. You know, they're free, guys. Free. And And Debbie's a great moderator, interviewer, so... And I'm very excited. Uh, the documentary is excellent too. The documentary is yeah. excellent. I'm very excited that Nancy and some of the family members oh, are going yeah. to be there. Um, wow. So to get some real firsthand, you know, it, information. But jumping on to, to uh, let's see, perhaps a little darker subject. Darker subject. Darker. How about okay. you know the gallows? The gallows open this weekend. Right. Right. Another Blumhouse. This is really the summer of Blumhouse, I think. You know, <laughs> we've got Insidious Chapter 3. Now we've got The Gallows. Sinister 2 is coming out. The yeah. Gift is coming out. All of this is under the Blumhouse banner. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Do you see a specific... I know there are different films. When you say Blumhouse banner, is there an aesthetic that you think kind of subtly ties everything together? Uh, horror. Low budget that doesn't look low budget. Right. But yeah. the fact that so much of it, it's not... In many of the cases, it's not blood and gore. It's all about the psychological horror. Yeah. You know, fear Fear is the key. The unseen is mm. what drives the fear. And that's something that we really get in the gallows. I had a chance to talk, uh, do an exclusive with our co-director, co-writers, co-VFX boys, mm. uh, Travis Clough and Chris Loffing, uh, about the making of the gallows. And one of the things that they do, it's shot... It's handheld, but I'm happy to say it is not shaky cam handheld. Which you don't like. No, I don't have to tell people <laughs> to take Dramamine before they go see the film. Um, but it is shot, you know, handheld. With, and the only lighting that is used is the lighting on the camera. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's all about four high school students recreating a play that had happened 20 years prior where there was a hanging in the play and the kid actually got hung. So now it's being recreated 20 years later, and one of our stars does not want to do the play. He's afraid. Uh, Then we have the overdramatic, melodramatic lead actress and producer who wants everything perfect. And then we have the arrogant, obnoxious best friend and his (laughs) equally arrogant cheerleader girlfriend who want to encourage the, the one, okay, let's just trash the set, then you don't have to do the play. And as they go in to trash the set one night yeah. to save their friend from having to do a play because he's so scared, 
um, more than a few things start going bump in the night and disappearing. So it is lit with exit signs, just mm -hmm. the actual lighting in a city building or a high school at night. Right. And it is handheld. And here are what Travis and Chris had to tell me about the visual tonal bandwidth and the great use of lighting. Yes. In terms of the color, I mean, you can tell in this room where it's very... We, one of the first things we noticed when we were kind of scouting locations for this movie was at night, high schools, you know, no lights on. The only thing on is the exit signs. And many high schools have these bright red glowing exit signs. And we thought, man, after dark, that's all there is. You know, that's the only light source you would have in a high school. And we just, we really liked that look. Yeah. And, and we kind of just, we took it and ran with it and yeah. tried to incorporate it as much as we could in the movie. And when Ed came on board, Ed actually came on board after we had kind of filmed the first version of the movie. Mm -hmm. Blumhouse got involved and they, they brought Ed with them. And, and Ed really liked that idea too. And he, we just kind of stuck with that. And, and really the only light source, the other light source in the movie is the camera itself. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's either that or the exit signs. That's about all you get. Yeah, we, we really tried to enhance it. There, there's sort of a dreary gloom to kind of the red lighting yeah. and, the, and the shadows they create. Even in this wall right here, it's like there's bright red, but then there's kind of dark it's a, red. It's an yeah. orangey. You've got an orangey texture, yeah. and it just depends based on the roller strokes. Yeah, yeah. And your lighting just captures it beautifully. Yeah, we felt like, like uh, we wanted it to be as very cinematic and like very we love lighting we love some of like some movie that I really love are some of the the uh the Asian films that have come out, like House of Flying Daggers and some of these, they have amazing lighting and color. The use of color is just brilliant in some of those movies. Well, uh, with found, and with found footage, too, it's like we, as we've said, you're not, you, know, you don't really have the ability to hide lights, to hide camera gear and things that are lighting this scene. So we had to go with a lot of just natural lighting. And again, the exit signs, the fire alarm, you know, mm -hmm. these things that just are bright red. That's that's ended up being like our, our light source. A lot of the buildings they actually had they between filming they changed out the exit signs and put in brand new green ones. So yeah. we had to actually remove the green and put in like red yeah. LED lights <laughs> and then fix it and, and put them back to. What yeah, were they thinking? What were they? Well, thinking? it was there was several months in between and it was a, a city building we were using for those scenes and mm -hmm. so. So I mean the visual look is terrific, but getting that visual look also requires using some cameras, and they used a ton of cameras. It's kind of like a, how the heck did this, this happen yeah. in terms of cameras? We actually, we in terms of cost, we didn't have a lot of money, so we started out using a hacked GH2 Panasonic GH2 for DSLR, some of the shots, yeah. DSLR, mm -hmm. but hacked, it gave us greater bandwidth and, and bit depth that, that we could use, and a, a Panasonic AF100. We got a lot of really good stuff with that, and although it was very tricky, and then Ed came on board, we used the the uh, C300, uh, we used the red sometimes when, when we had a little bit more access uh, to things. And, uh, Night vision stuff was all shot on a Sony Handycam. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, they, they really... They really stepped up their game. First-time filmmakers, the mm -hmm. cast are first-time. Most of them are first-time. Reese Mishler, um, and they, they all play using their own their characters have their own names which helps imbue some authenticity and because it was shot four years ago they were all age appropriate high school age <laughs> um so i was i'm looking up right now the cameras that they were talking yes, to about the Panasonic i mean gh2 yeah 
the the camera they they really do an amazing amazing job you know and i think they have a bright future ahead of them and for jason blum to pick up the film that tells me jason thinks the same thing okay cool yeah so and i think we have time for one clip from ant-man because ant-man it opens on friday ant-man i've never used this word with a marvel film it is adorable and one of the things that helps make it adorable are ants themselves. But there's a lot of science and research that went into Ant-Man and specifically ants. And here's what director Peyton Reed told me about picking the ants for Ant-Man. Uh, I'll start. There, there's a definitive ant textbook that's written by this guy, uh, Edward Wilson, who's considered the, the Ant-Man. The New York Times bestseller. Yeah, you're trying to sell it. I mean, um, but it it, uh, it talks about all the specific types of ants there are in the world, and there are uh, there are thousands of them. But also their specific skill sets. So one of the things that, that I loved about the movie is that we introduce you know at least four of these specific types of ants. If you ask Evangeline Lilly, she can tell you the Latin names for all of these ants. Uh, Parapanera, Slavata. <laughs> uh, but it was fun because it, it's a heist movie, you know, at its core. And instead of sort of like, here's the guys doing this and this and this, it's like, well, here are the ants that are doing this, here are the ants that are doing that. Um, and I guarantee that's something that you've never seen in a movie before. You know, and I, I uh, people talk about the shrinking when they talk about Ant-Man, but it's the other power, the being able to control ants, that's the weirder power that I, I, uh, I think is going to really surprise people in the movie. So um, one of the things I liked about doing research was all the things that we have the ants do you know, for example, the, uh, the fire ants, they're architects, they can make rafts and ladders, they do that in real life. So, you know, the kid in me was like, oh, I can go on the internet and, you know, look at these ants and it's actually real. I think that's a really cool aspect of the movie. So you're going to get an adorable film and a science lesson at the same time with Ant-Man and you're going to love every minute of it. And because we're out of time once again, so we're going to hear more from Peyton Reed next week. Okay. Uh, Byron Bean will be, be here next week. Uh, Aaron Fitch will be joining us to talk about Living the Dream. Kendra Montagna is going to be here to go behind the lens of Comic-Con. And I'll see you next week as well. Well, that's going to be mighty fun. Yeah. Cool. Thanks for joining us. We are Behind the Lens. Mm-hmm.